Okay, so hi, uh, Mike Costin. I retired last June, June uh, of 2019, after 41 years in the fire service. A uh, long time, <laughs> I know. Uh, but when I retired, I was the district chief in charge of um, uh, special operations, hazmat, and WMD. We did all the seaburn training. We were tasked with uh, developing and then delivering all the training. And right now, the, in my old unit, they're heavy involved with the training for the city and, and, and the department as far as uh, PPE and the donning and doffing and all that staying safe. Uh, right now. A few years ago, we did the same thing with the Ebola outbreak. And we literally, we brought in uh, police homicide and crime scene. So it wasn't just the firefighters, the hazmat and the decon. It was the other agencies and, and Boston EMS, their special operations. It was the people that were going to be there if we had a call for something to do with the Ebola. But as I said, I retired in June after 41 years. Right now, I'm, well, like everybody, I'm at home. And, but I do a little teaching for some, for LSU and some different groups around the country. But right now, listening to all the advice and staying at home. So one of the things that I, I think is, uh, one of the things I was involved with, but I, I, I think I can tie it into what's going on now. We're trying to get all the people to buy in, wearing masks, keeping that social distance, and, and doing what they can to help. Back in 2013, as everybody knows, we had the Boston Marathon bombing. And uh, my unit, the Special Operations Unit, we were assigned the finish line, that block. And during the, um, the response, after the, the bombs had gone off, one of the things uh, later on people say to me, oh, wow, your guys and, and the police and EMS and everybody, it was just amazing. And the thing that was amazing to me was the general public. So Marathon Sports, where the first device went off, they had these young you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, hey, mom, dad, I'm working the marathon Monday. This will be great. They're selling T-shirts. They're at the finish line. Very exciting for them. So when the when the bombs went off, and as you might imagine, right now they don't have the equipment. We didn't have the type of equipment we needed or enough of it at the scene. These young kids were coming out of marathon sports with T-shirts and stuff to be used as pressure garments and as makeshift tourniquets. It was amazing. And people, when they would say it about the first responders, you would think, yeah, everybody did a great job, but it's what they trained for. It's what they, whether they've been to anything bad before, they trained for this. And, it, and it's kind of their job. These civilians jumped in and did the right thing. So when I see, you know, people now are saying, oh, the, the public's got to learn. The public's learning. And people are trying to do the right thing. They're keeping that distance. I go out every day, uh, me and my wife, kind of the off hours, and we go get uh, a walk-in. But we go to an area of the city along the water that not a lot of people are there. And we wear a, a mask that we can pull up if we pass other people. But everybody you pass kind of gives each other room, you know, and they all have some, some sort of protection on. So I, I really think whether people realize it or not, the general public gets it. And they are doing what they can to help. You know, and there's there's so many things to unpack there. Um, and I think we'll, we'll loop back uh, to the public. And, and I completely agree with you where 
during crisis, people are, it's an opportunity for people to come together and we see it time and time again. And unfortunately with social media, it's so easy to hone in on the negative, you know, the, right. the handful of people that aren't in this context, you know, adhering to, to physical distance and whatnot, but that's discounting the millions, literally millions of other people that are doing the right thing because, and, and not because they're told to, not because right. it's a rule or a law, but it, it's exactly. the right thing to do. Right. And we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely hit on that topic here. But I want to go back to, let's say, the bombing, for example. And the reason I'll use this is because it's a very acute situation. It's, it's a crisis. And you've got all of this preparation that went into it. But what does it look like? So, Dennis, we, when you're on scene and this event, you've got a, a fantastic event. Things are going along really, really well. And then, boom. You know, just like a business owner, for example, things are going really well. You know, the strong first quarter, uh, you know, profits are good. People are happy and all these other things. And then in this context, COVID hits. So can you talk about the first few minutes that you experienced or maybe the first hour when the, the bombs went off? Because again, presumably you're sitting in the command post, you're monitoring, you're listening to the radio and it's kind of business as usual, maybe at a heightened awareness, but then boom, in a split second, everything changes. So what were your thoughts and, and what were your feelings with regard to the first few minutes uh, so during, during the bombings? When you plan for an incident, uh, you plan for an event rather, um, and then it becomes an incident. It's like, how do you react? And really what it comes down to, whether it's in business or whether it's in uh, emergency response, is your training. And you're planning. You've planned for all this. You've trained for all this. So in the first maybe hour or so, it's basically natural. It kicks in. Now, naturally, there's a lot more, especially in the, the outside world, uh, for the long haul. But in that crisis, people will do the right thing. Now, with the Barney, uh, we had our special ops unit uh, down along the finish line. And I was beyond the finish line, about a block away. And when the, f the first bomb went off, everybody just headed to the site of the blast, not knowing what it was, but we knew it was something that shouldn't have happened. The second one went off about 15 seconds or so later, and everybody just converged to the two sites. And when you get there, like I say, your training and everything kicks in, you know, no matter what, you have to mitigate what's going on right now. And we'll worry about everything else later, but we have to take care of this. So we had a lot of help. As I said before, the civilians helped. Uh, we had firefighters assigned for various things besides the special ops group. Now, one of the things that was unique with, with our group is we had these uh, joint hazard assessment teams, and we had members of the civil support team working with us. So you might think that everybody just runs to a victim and tries to do something. And, and that's what people were doing. But at the same time, we had a, a, a mission or a task of doing some metering and find out, finding out if it was just a bomb, which is bad enough, or was there some contamination? Was it, you know, what they call a dirty bomb? W was it more than the initial explosions? And, I got to say, the teams did a great job. They naturally they didn't bypass somebody who was really hurt, but they would continue on with their detection 
and do their job and then report it back, uh, which was a little difficult because the bombs knocked out a lot of the communication system. But we were able, between radios and texting and stuff, to get the information passed on. The one thing you didn't want to have is to be a delay to any of the victims in getting treated because the hospitals were afraid maybe the patient's contaminated. So as quickly as, as they could, you know, uh, beyond us after we made our reports, they got that information to where it had to go. And, and as you see, uh, and anybody that's done any of the history of the bombing, other than uh, the, the three victims uh, that died right there at the bombing, and then the officer, Sean Collier, who, who was uh, murdered later, nobody died. They were all brought to the hospital, and they were treated instantly. There was no delay in their treatment, and they did a fantastic job. Having been there, you never would have believed that was going to be the outcome. So, it, I'm, it, I'm curious, really, for, sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm no, curious, um, because you're talking about a whole bunch of autonomous units working now and carrying out instructions that were largely predetermined and that they were trained for. From a leadership perspective, what are you trying to do for the first hour, for example? Because like you said, you know something had happened. You don't know what yet. So what is what advice would you give to other leaders that are in crisis in terms of that first kind of phase of whatever that crisis might be? So what, uh, what, what could you tell them that you've learned over the years, particularly with the bombing? So really, anybody that's been involved in anything like this, and it doesn't even have to be at this magnitude. You know, nowadays they're studying these complex coordinated attacks, which this was, but sometimes you see them in Paris and these other places, much bigger scale. With this, all we did was refer to our planning and our training in the beginning. You cannot wrap your head around what's happening, all right? You really don't know. And one of the things that I don't know if a lot of people know, but at the same time as this was happening, or a short time later, there was a report of another explosion at the JFK Library uh, over uh, by UMass Boston campus. And so this is all coming in. What it turned out to be on that part, because now you're thinking similar to 9-11, a plane hits a tower. What is that? Another plane hits another tower, you know, and it starts going, you think, what's going to be next? Well, when the bomb was reported at JFK, or the explosion at JFK Library, we're gearing up thinking, all right, you know, we got a lot of stuff going on. You know, we're going to have to split up the resources, right? And it turned out it was a fire in the mulch, maybe from a cigarette or whatever, I don't know. Um, but at the same time that it was being reported, there was a loud bang. Uh, I believe it might have even been the slamming of a dumpster ne next to the building, just a worker. And people turned, they hear the boom, and they see the fire. And it turned out that it had nothing to do with the attack at the marathon. So you're getting all this information coming into you, and you have to try to piece it together. And you know, because we plan and meet with all our fellow agencies and all the stakeholders uh, that are involved with any event, and we know someone's going to be tracking this stuff down and getting the information. That was really the key. 
to get the information back. Eventually, uh, after the the victims were cleared out of the area and the various agencies were coming to help, the FBI came and took over the scene. They basically shut down the street and, you know, we, we kind of moved out of the area outside the barricades of that couple of block area. And then it was just a matter of, uh, for the next several hours, responding to backpacks and different things that were left that for the most part turned out to be somebody scared running away, dropped their backpack or whatever. You know, it wasn't, there was nothing else found that evening, um, like, like the two pressure cooker uh, bombs that went off. So it was just one of those things. And then several hours later, because you really, you know, management is, is setting up a command post and people are asking, one of the things uh, Boston did on the fire side of things, we sent a lot of the people home that were working the event. It was like an extra shift for them. And the reason they did that didn't have anything to do with money or all the time or anything. It was to get better accountability as to who was at the scene. So if I know uh, Engine 50 is at the scene, I can look on the computer and I have a writing list of all the members. So it was much easier for whoever was taking care of that stuff, plus fire alarm, our dispatch office, it was much easier for them to have accountability as to who you have here. And by uh, getting the extra workers that were brought in on their day off, you know, out of the area, and now just doing the same job uh, and bringing in, if you sent away one of my hazmat teams working the event, you brought me in a hazmat engine. So I still had hazmat uh, technicians. So it, it really was a process. The uh, the dep deputy chief that was in charge, the overall commander, incident command, and the um, on duty that day came to the scene and he ran the show with his on duty people coming in now. And, and they really, um, when people were questioning, why are they sending people home? They weren't. They were just, it was all about accountability because there was so much going to be going on that night. They wanted to know who they had and keep track of everybody for safety's sake. And, and it really worked out well. So if I can um, unpack a few things that you mentioned there with regard to emergency services calls it the size up. So it's essentially, you know, when something happens, you do a size up. So you figure out who, what, when, where, making sure all of your people are taken care of and so on and so forth. And I think that the private sector can adopt that mentality as well, where let's figure out where we're at right now um, so that we can start to decide where we go from here. And then, you know, the communication piece was, was a big one that you talked about. So how do you figure out what information is valid and what isn't? Because in my experience, that's one of the most challenging things. You either don't have enough information or you almost have too much. Right. So what kind of guidance could you give to some people? Because in COVID, for example, even though this applies to any crisis, there's no shortage of information coming in. And it's like drinking water through a fire hose. Right. So what, what advice or what kind of lessons have you learned over your experience in terms of figuring out what's valid and what isn't? So at the scene itself, when it's going on, there's a lot of information coming in. You couldn't discount it, but 
you have to use a little common sense. Prior to the bombs going off, one of the things we told all the teams was use common sense. And we had a multi-tiered approach. So you might, show, you might get a call for a suspicious backpack. You would show up, and it's a little pink backpack, says St. Mary's School on it. And you look to your right, and there's a whole bunch of students from St. Mary's, one little girl's missing her backpack. You would contact the teacher and say, hey, you know, and they go, oh, that's little so-and-so's backpack. Okay, you need to reunite her with her backpack. And it was done. If there was a little more to that, you would call in one of our teams, a joint hazard assessment team. They would come in. They would do a little more, maybe do some things. And all the while, while this is going on, you're trying to do all this. Safety was number one, life safety. But you also don't want to disrupt this event unless you absolutely have to. So by having this layered approach, we would have these different layers come in, and each one had a little more capability and a little more authority to make some decisions. So once you got past that second team, if they still weren't sure, we could bring in a uh, another team, and everybody calls it something different. We were calling them CAT teams, seaburn assessment teams. This team had uh, a senior NCO from the civil support team. It had an FBI agent. It had one of my hazmat specialists. So these teams could come in and they could make this, they were decision makers. So they could go ahead and decide, hey, we got to do this, we got to do that, we've got to stop this, whatever it was. So during that, we would check everything out. You couldn't discount it, but we would use common sense and move on as quickly as you can. And as as the night wore on, it's similar to, if you remember years ago when they had all the white powder calls, mm -hmm. anthrax and all that, right? In the beginning, it was kind of a major undertaking every time we got a call, right? But it was ridiculous, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, white powder on the floor next to their coffee station with the coffee cream in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, the elderly woman down the street had some powder on her magazine. No, no one's looking to harm her, right? But we had to respond to all of it. Eventually, it got to be so routine, you would check it out. But instead of having this kind of robust response, they'd pour a little bleach on it and move on their way. They didn't just leave it. They neutralized it or whatever, whatever it was, coffee made or whatever. You know? um, and, and it was the same thing at the marathon. You, We checked everything out, but you moved on quickly as soon yeah, as you and, ruled out a couple of things. And, and I want to talk about a couple of things out of that in that during crisis, especially, or any large scale event, what I'm hearing you say is that the front line, in your case, the hazmat techs or, you know, the, the rank and file firefighters were empowered to make some decisions based on a predetermined criteria or just common sense. And what is the advantage of doing it that way? Because I think a lot of times during crisis, as leaders, we tend to want to reel in the control and reel in everybody, you know, where we're like, everyone stop and return to the mothership here. I need to take charge of this thing. But what I'm hearing you say is that it should be the exact opposite. So what are your thoughts on that and how we empower people and what are the advantages of that? So... One of the advantages is, 
the teams that are out there, Andy, we had uh, we had two firefighters at maybe three or four groups of them in every block, including the north and south side of the route. So you didn't want them to have to cross and interfere with the route. And we had backup response behind, you know, both sides. What what they were trained to do and what they were – it was explained to them in, in advance before they ever worked the event, they were told what they'd be responsible for. So they had medical kits just in case. They had some meters on them for hazmat. If you got any radiation or something, they didn't have to be experts with the meters. But if that thing started to vibrate on their hip, they knew they had to call the next level up. So by doing that, you're getting, and, and one of the other things they did, uh, we call them Delta teams. And these two-man teams, so say uh, you're on a nearby fire company and there's an alarm in a building along the route uh, of the marathon. Well, we can't have apparatus rushing in and out of there. But I have you standing on the corner with, with your partner and with your kit and your radio and everything. So we tell you, Daryl, hey, go up to, you know, whatever number Boylston Street, check out that alarm. You do, you report back. That yeah, was just, you know, a uh, little kid pulled the uh, pull station or uh, some dust set or whatever it was. But you've taken care of it very quickly. And, and on the entry level. So it didn't have to go to apparatus responding and specialized units responding. It was taken care of. And that's how we do. Uh, we're very fortunate in the city that we have a lot of major events, annual events. And uh, while we were playing with the connection here, I did hear you throw a little dig out about uh, the GOAT, Tom Brady. Um, so we've been very fortunate that year after year after year, we have these celebrations uh, when your team wins the championship, um, you have these rolling rallies that we protect. So we've, we've been very fortunate and we know that. But so we, we have a lot of... Uh, By the way, hats off to you for, for digging that, you know, inserting yes. that into the conversation. Oh, I, I was waiting uh, for the right time. <laughs> but, you know, so we, we do a lot of this planning. We do a lot of this training. And, and so it's not like uh, one time maybe every so many years we have an event. We may have a different event come in. Uh, every eight or 10 years, the tall ships came to Boston, but it's no different. Uh, you know, you've got some added things because now you have to protect the harbor and everything as well. But it's basically the same good foundation that we use on all our responses. And we use that tiered approach and kind of a multi-hazard approach. It might, it might not be a bombing. It might be a heck of a rain and windstorm blows in in the middle of the 4th of July fireworks and the people have to be safely evacuated. So when we set up our plans, we basically make it an all hazards approach. And that's, um, that's an important point because right now we're talking about, or we're recording this during COVID, but frankly, replace COVID with any other crisis that will be coming down the pipe in the next few years, just right. like the ones we faced in the past. Yeah. So I, to summarize then, I heard you talk about ensuring that the, the folks 
closest to the event, closest to the scene, are able to exercise some common sense because that that way there's not a lot of drama going on every single time something occurs. But I also heard you say the role of the subject matter experts. And oftentimes in organizations, I think that are very top heavy, there's a reluctance to rely on a subject matter expert because typically they're less senior in the organization. So can you speak to that? Because you've talked about the multi-tiered approach and when a subject matter comes, comes in, subject matter expert, they aren't the highest ranking individual in the incident. So how do you right. handle that in terms of ego and all of those other things, Dennis? So what they would do is we had uh, Hazmat and Seaburn and all that, WND, we had multiple vehicles with uh, command centers in them. And, and also we had a mobile laboratory vehicle uh, with a, a mini command center built in there that I would use quite often. So what would happen is when we send these uh, hazmat teams, these two-man teams, or whatever it was, on the kind of a, not the lower level, because they're very qualified, but the initial response level, their findings and everything. One, I was very um, aware of their capabilities because we do uh, an enormous amount of training. And so they come to our facility, our warehouse that we work out of, for all this training. So we know what certifications, what training, who's the best, who's good with a meter, who's good with this or that, right? So when they go and respond, they don't call back to the overall incident command. They call to hazmat operations, which would be me or, or somebody working with me. They would give us the information. We would ask, we would kind of vet that information. We would ask the proper questions. And then when that was passed on to the incident commanders and, and you know, any type of management above us, they accepted it because they knew, you know, we didn't just willy-nilly tell them, oh, we got this, we got that. You know, it came from qualified people at the scene that we were very familiar with, but they would give it to us in this command center, and we could ask a couple of questions. Sometimes that person who's not there uh, with the tunnel vision, staring at the package or whatever, might ask a question you hadn't thought of. Hey, do you see this? Is there anything behind it? Is there anything, you know, um, one of the things we would try to teach them as well, even after the, uh, the bombs went off, was every agency has their key phrases. So if you're the bomb squad, you're, you're taught to look for a secondary device. And we hear that all the time in the world we live in we would tell them look for secondary hazards now the bomb guys would be like hey hey i said no no that includes all that but maybe the first bomb compromised the facade of this building that we're all working in front of or something you know so look what else happened from that bomb and, and part of that's going to be your secondary devices and everything else but i thought when you look for a secondary hazard that encompassed that and more because that, that one and only bomb might have already done some damage, and maybe an hour into this rescue, a building collapses uh, on us. So yeah. th these were the things we would do. But, but to get back to those initial teams, they were trained, but we, we would vet it on our side of the house, and then we would push it up the chain of command. And once and we did, it, it was accepted. 
Well, because I think we have to recognize as leaders that we can't do everything and we have to leverage the expertise within our organizations. Right. So on the private sector, maybe it's IT, it's human resources, it's uh, whatever that looks like. And oftentimes there's a reluctance to. And I really liked what you said with regard to the secondary hazards, because if you bring in different expertise, they are going to look at it through a different lens. So if right. you have in your example, if you have fire and police and you say secondary hazards, they are going to look at the same circumstance completely different and come up with the best options to you to execute on as a leader. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And, and there's often a reluctance to do that because, again, I think it goes back to control and, and our need to micromanage. And so let's say that hypothetically, uh, Dennis, you have a leader that is over your shoulder, you know, and it's crisis and things are changing and so on and so forth. And they're over your shoulder and they're telling you what to do to great detail. And they may or may not have expertise in that area. What kind of advice could you give to them or what have you used over the span of your career? Because I think we've all worked for very detail oriented people in our lives and it's particularly a problem during crisis. So what kind of techniques or tactics have you used in your experience? So we had, we certainly had that from time to time, but, but I have to say not a lot. I think part of it was uh, myself and, and, and some of my team, we had a lot of years of experience and they knew over the years they could count on us at various uh, incidents. And if they had questions, they could call. I could be at home and they could call me and say, listen, this is what we ran into. How about some advice? So I didn't get a lot of that micromanaging, but still there would be some. And what we would do is we would, first off, we had a separate channel to talk to the teams out there. So those people that might be looking over your shoulder, they're in another location in the command center, say, um, or the operations center, and they're not hearing every, everything I say to the teams. Um, they're, they're getting the more general. They might say to me, hey, we, we heard that uh, response for a package, you know, outside the post office or whatever. What's going on there? And I would tell them, but they wouldn't hear the back and forth between me and the team because we didn't need that person who's trying to micromanage to chime in into their earpieces when they're trying to, you know, meet or a package or something. So if, I have to say, and I, and, and I know it happens, it happens in the civilian world. Uh, the manager sometimes thinks if he doesn't question things and act like he's doing something, he's not showing that he's managing. And really that's not the case. If you have good command presence, and you're really leading um, whatever it is, you don't need to be telling everybody what to do. You can let them do their thing. That's why you have them in that position and require them to give you some sort of briefing uh, periodically. And, and I got to say, not only just at the marathon, but at all the special events we did, that's really what I found. Um, they just, they didn't want to be left out in the, in the cold. And if the mayor or the politicians or somebody would have asked them a question, they didn't want to be embarrassed. They wanted to have the information. So they didn't need to know every little step of the way. They just needed to know that the event is running smoothly. This is happening. That's happening. 